damn it. <laughs> I wanted to. Um, okay, what are so you ma- going for? It's Tuesday, December 11th, and you're listening to the latest episode of the Typed Out Podcast. Every week, Typed Out aims to bring you conversations that seek to expand the boundaries of understanding and acceptance. In today's episode, I will be speaking with the artist Mike Tony about the representation of pan-African characters in anime. If you're not sure what anime is, it is a genre and style of Japanese animation. And here to join me in introducing Mr. Tony and his work is my con waifu and fellow Japanophile, Mandy Luzzi. What's up, Mandy? Hi, thank you so much for having me. But of course, ohayo gozaimasu. Ohayo. So Mandy and I actually met in, in Japanese class. We met at the Tenry Cultural Institute, which is where we've been studying for about the past three years. And if you are looking to to study Japanese, I, I do strongly recommend checking out Tenry. It's been pretty cool, wouldn't you say, Mandy? Yeah, I think it's been a great experience. Obviously, I met you there, so I wouldn't change anything about that. But it's a great little community. They have wonderful art exhibits, and um, they have kind of musical presentations. It's it's a really lovely community and a great opportunity to learn more about Japanese language and culture. Absolutely. I would say that one of the things that really connected us was, was anime, correct? Absolutely. I think you had a Harry Potter notebook or something and maybe a folder that was another kind of anime. And we happened to be sitting next to each other. It was very kind of daunting to be in that class as an adult starting to study Japanese at this point, knowing nobody. And it's a very wide variety of people. There's everywhere from, you know, married businessmen to college kids. And I'm really right in the middle of that. And I was just, I set my, I set my sights on you and I said, I'm going to make that guy be friends with me because I think we like a lot of the same stuff. Yes. And I'm so happy that you did, but also way to like blow up my spot on my Harry Potter. (laughs) Sorry. Don't be ashamed of your Harry Potter love. Not at all. I mean, I'm just going to like come clean on all of my nerdiness, which is like, (laughs) yes, I do happen to have a Harry Potter notebook and an anime folder for my Japanese class. And you know what? I even cosplay. So I'm just going to celebrate that right now. As you should. Exactly. It's like the things that you love, share it because there's, there's a reason for it. And, you know, you and I have gone in depth about what it is that we that we love but for our listeners Mandy please tell me what did, what is it about anime that you're drawn to what is it that you love about it I've been watching anime since I was very young um I'm not sure if it first started with uh, Cartoon Network's Toonami block that they used to run in the afternoon where it was Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon. Um, then that went into the kind of nighttime stuff with Cowboy Bebop. And eventually, prior to the Pokemon games coming out in America, they were actually showing the anime at probably six in the morning on some random channel. And I would watch it while I was getting ready for school. I just love everything about how it looks. Um, there is just this really wonderful level of fantasy and kind of fantasticalness that I don't find as much in American animation. And something about it just really spoke to me once I realized that that was a thing and something that I could kind of pour my energy into. I became obsessed with it. 
it was a lot harder back then. Uh, I remember saving my allowance so that I could go to Sam Goody and buy a VHS tape that had three episodes of an anime I'd never heard of and would probably never watch again, but it was something that I could consume and this was before the days of Hulu and Netflix and, you know, Blockbuster didn't carry anything that was anime, really. So I was very thirsty for it. Can I just say that you blew me right back to the 90s with that whole sentence of Sam Goody, <laughs> I mean, VHS tapes and Blockbuster? Yeah, I did it all. You know, I was a true 90s kid. <laughs> Absolutely. Me too. I mean, I remember, again, watching Toonami when I was a kid and, and having that exposure to, to Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon, which I know you and I both love. I just, especially coming back to it in my 30s, like rewatching Sailor Moon, there's so much in there. I, I see why I connected with it as a kid. I completely agree. It really puts directly in your face this kind of, oh, do you want to be something more fantastic than what you already are, even if you're kind of just a whiny girl, you can still have that. And that really spoke to me. I mean, I love just the over-the-top everything, the crazy outfits, the crazy hair, the huge eyes. It very much connected with me when I was young. Yeah. And also, I just love that it's a group of young girls that are teaming together to save the world, you know? It is interesting. I don't really feel like there were many other shows around that time anyway that focused on females specifically that weren't, not to say that there weren't male-focused storylines in the show, but most of it at least was about them being crime fighters themselves, whether they were being saved at the end by, you know, a rose that did basically nothing um, is kind <laughs> of irrelevant. But, you know, it was really about we have someone who's really smart and really good at fighting crime. We have someone who's like a little bit of a slacker girl, but she's good at fighting crime, too. There's a mean girl. There is an annoying girl. There is the jock girl. And it was really, although stereotypical in that sense, at the time, I don't really think that women were given that kind of exposure to being a superhero. Yeah, they were kind of like the Spice Girls of love and justice. Oh, I love that. The other thing is that, one, I can't think of, of any other TV shows of its time that were showcasing women in that way, that were that it was an all-female fighting force. I mean, even now, thinking back to like last week's episode about Stan Lee, where we have the Avengers, and even though Black Widow is is one of the prominent founding members of the Avengers, you never see her represented in any of the promotional material. She's always left off. Where is she? I agree. I, I think even in today's world, although women and people of color are getting much more representation in the superhero world, it's still not the main focus. Uh, even, you know, Wonder Woman, great, that's amazing, but that gets nowhere near the amount of press, talk, anything that any of the more male-focused superhero movies are. And Sailor Moon was one of the first things that I was able to see that was really just about all the female characters and not just them going shopping or having a crush on a boy, but actually dealing with problems. Yeah. And even though those things are in there, like Sailor Moon is very much in love with with tuxedo mask and you know sometimes we see the girls being a little boy crazy it's never it's never the central focus of what it is that they're talking about no i absolutely agree and i think uh you know the other characters often make fun of sailor moon for her kind of boy crazy antics and 
Uh, to your point, yes, they all obviously have love interest plot lines at some point in it, but the acknowledgement that one of these characters can be very boy crazy and the rest of them all sort of roll their eyes at her is something very different, I think. None of their success at being Sailor Scouts is based entirely on their relationships with other men, especially when you take Sailor Moon out of the equation. Yeah. Beyond Sailor Moon, Mandy, are there any other anime shows or characters that that you gravitate towards or any anyone that stands out from your childhood that you continue to celebrate? Speaking of, you know, strong women in anime, uh, one of the first anime movies that I saw was uh, Princess Mononoke. And I went up to New York City when I was a kid with my dad to see this movie. So it was very big deal for me. Um, you know, at the time, I think this was a dubbed version. It had some really big name American actors in it. And the whole plot of the movie is really here is this wild wolf girl who is rebelling against basically modern time, them trying to kind of abuse the people, abuse the environment, all for the sake of profit. And both the hero and the villain in the story are strong women characters with completely different personalities, none of which are shallow. They really, you understand why they have those feelings and that their strong opinions are very based in the world that they individually grew up in. But they come to an impasse at the end. I think it's really, really, really beautiful. And it's stayed with me for my whole life. Yeah. I mean, thinking of Afsan, who is our female hero in that story, she is dedicated to her cause. Absolutely. She's willing to sacrifice her relationship with her romantic counterpart in order to achieve her goal. And I think that really is such an important message when you're talking about women heroes. Yeah. And it's the message that we're relaying to to girls and young women. Absolutely. You know, that you don't need a man to swoop in and save the day or drop a rose, as you referenced. Yeah. And like, what is the point? <laughs> Basically none, just making sure a guy showed up. So <laughs> that's right. Have you seen the meme that was floating around where it's like tuxedo mask in the window and he's like, my work here is done. And then you see Sailor Moon and she's like, but what did you do? Oh, my God. No, I didn't. But now I need to Google that right away. I, I was imagining the is this a butterfly? Um what is, is this a pigeon i think it's a tuxedo mask not in his tuxedo mask outfit as his regular self and he's holding his hand up and looking at a butterfly and i don't even know if the original translation was is this a pigeon but that is what people have put over it and i don't know it cracks me up <laughs> amazing but yeah I definitely find that meme because it's hysterical I will. And it's it's so true. You know, I do love me some some tuxedo mask, but it's like more often than not, Usagi and friends are saving the day. He'll like come in, give like a little philosophical one liner or just like basically read off like the tag of a of like your tea bag, you know, like <laughs> the little quote that you'll find on your tea bag and yes. then just like jump out the window. Pretty much that. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the little like yogi tea words of encouragement, tuxedo mask. Exactly. But, uh, get a move on. <laughs> So speaking of characters and, and anime and representation, uh, one thing I'm going to be speaking with Mike about is that there are there's limited representation of characters of color in anime. Now, can you think of anything off the top of your head, any shows off the top of your head, where you vividly recall seeing a character of color who is not just in the background or secondary, but actually leading the, the storyline, like driving the plot? I think it's really interesting. There are several reasons that I think representation in anime is not as strong as it really could be 
part of that being there's not a lot of interaction with non-Asian or non-Japanese people. That's their audience and that's who they're catering to. Secondarily, the animation style, unless the artist is specifically kind of calling out that there's a difference between Western characters and Asian characters, they're pretty much animated the same. They look the same. They have the same eyes, the same facial structure. So to an outside audience, those characters are all white, although they may have been intended to be viewed as Japanese. A few shows, though, do do a really good job with that. Uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which I torture Nick with this show all the time. It is my favorite, favorite show. I just want him to watch it every day. So you should all tweet and Instagram DM him and tell him about (laughs) how good it is. Uh, But in season three um, Stardust Crusaders of JoJo, there is a main character named Avdal, and he is Egyptian, and he's portrayed as that. He is not a filler character. He's a crucial member of the team who helps defeat enemies. He is just as strong. He's smarter than other characters, and at no point do you ever feel like he's there on the side any more than any other character is. He's a part of the main group. Uh, I think... Hunter Hunter is another kind of interesting example of that. Um, there is yeah. a character, Canary, who is black and she's also, well, she's great because she's black and female, which is just wonderful, I think. Yeah. She's extre- and she's a badass. She's such a badass. She's so strong. She's a kid, but she can really kick anyone's ass and no one really even blinks twice at this. They just accept that, yeah, you are that cool. Like you are that strong and you are that great. She's unfortunately not in the show as much as some of the other characters, but I think it's really important that for a role that that character plays that that's how they chose to show her. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's if once you do begin to include characters of representation, it is about how you portray them. Absolutely. She's not a joke character. Neither of those two characters are joke characters. They're extremely important to the story and they play their role towards moving that story forward without being kind of parodies or just comedic versions of themselves. Right. They're not tokens. Absolutely not. Yeah. They are really just as important to the story and are presented that way. I think all of this is to say that even though there are characters of color that we do see in anime, that we could definitely up the exposure for sure. And one thing that I enjoy talking to Mike about, which you'll hear in our interview, is about how he's working towards creating an anime series or a manga that is all strictly characters of color. I think that's amazing. And there really are not enough of that. There are almost more American companies making Japanese style anime involving black characters than there are anything in Japan. So I think anything that we can do to get more exposure that way and the more celebrities come out especially celebrities of color that talk about their love of anime the more likely that is to change in japan and in other animes moving forward yeah all right well let's hear from mike about himself his work and what inspires him so joining me now over skype is artist Mike Tony. And Mike, you and I met at uh, Anime NYC on Sunday. And I happened to be walking around Artist Alley and I came across your work. Well, one, I should probably preface the fact that I was cosplaying, or for those that don't understand that term, dressed as, <laughs> Crollo Lucilfer from the anime Hunter Hunter. 
And so you and I happened to engage, one, because I think you recognized my cosplay, and that just opened the discussion for basically why I asked you to be a part of this podcast. Mike, please tell me, one, about yourself, and two, about the work that you do. My name is Mike Tony. I, I live here in, uh, in New York, obviously. And um, I did recognize your cosplay. Uh, Hunter x Hunter is my top favorite anime. Uh, underneath that is uh, Yu Yu Hakusho. Um, so the moment I recognized that, I think you might have been one of two uh, Krolos that I actually saw. So, um, yeah, that, that started our conversation. And, and uh, what I actually do as an illustrator is, um, you know, as a lover of anime, uh, one thing that I feel like is a little bit missing is, um, you know, people of color in anime. It is a Japanese medium. Um, but, you know, with anime and manga, they pull from, you know, inspiration from all over the world. And I just found that there felt like there was a bit of an active avoidance of, you know, kind of pan-Africanism there um, when they've pulled from so many different cultures. So I just started to kind of add that pan-African kind of um, African diaspora uh, uh, medium to it. And uh, no slight against anime because I love it. It's just you know, wanting to see more people of color in it. So uh, a couple of years ago, I think I said on my Instagram that uh, I'm I'm gonna predominantly make you know people of color and uh, anime, and then I want to say maybe a few months ago, even last year, um, I decided that I would use a lot of Pan African lore and cultural based things. So the weapons that are were created and, and made in Africa, um, you know, certain places, styles, and fashions and stuff, um, and I started adding more of that to my work. So that's really really my charge as, as someone who does anime. Yeah. And so through like the work that you do, like the reason why I stopped at your table is because it's so true. Like I love, well, I should probably preface that like typed out is aiming to foster discussion that ex- seeks to expand the boundaries of understanding and acceptance, but also highlighting people that are bringing representation to areas that truly need it. And I, I really do think that anime and manga could use more people of color a hundred percent. I can only, I mean, I'm not well steeped in anime myself, despite being a cosplayer, but I think off the top of my head, the only anime I can actually think of where I saw black character representation is Hunter Hunter. Like I think of the bodyguard and she's one of few of the other characters. I mean, she's so supporting role in that show that it's like, I don't even know if that really counts. Are there any that, that pop out to the top of your mind, Mike, that you feel like there is some representation there at all yeah there are a couple um but it's it's you know it's kind of hard too because canary uh the the bodyguard you're referring to she's definitely one um and she was annotated you know to like a little bit of a side character in the original hunter x hunter she's actually a redhead um Oh, really? Yeah, she's actually more Irish looking. So in 2011, when they redid it, I was so surprised that they because I loved her character, too, in the original. Uh, And I was very happy that they had made her a person of color. I thought that that was a really great update. Um, And so, yeah, she's definitely one of them. Um, Another one is Kalik from Soul Eater. Uh, He ends up being one of the um, team leaders as one of the top students at... um, at uh, kind of the, the the university that they have there that creates like the the death god sites and stuff like that. And um, he was one of the people of color I felt like that was represented pretty well. 
Yeah. And yeah, he was definitely a side character and stuff like that. But there was one episode where, excuse me, two episodes where they kind of, they let him shine a little bit. He got like two or three minutes to, to say some like really cool dialogue. And, um, you know, he, he wasn't stereotypically designed. He, he had like these little bit of dreads at the top of his hair. He had glasses on and stuff like that. And, uh, um, you know, he didn't have kind of like a, the best way I can describe it is kind of more of this like hip hop cadence that a lot of people like to add to people of color, you know, in, mm-hmm. medium, in media. And uh, I thought he was a really good representation of person of color in anime. Uh, another is, well, you know, you have Killer B and, and the Cloud Village in, in Naruto. I'm a, a little reluctant to bring that up because, you know, the first person of color that they introduced in the anime was like a rapper. And, you know, that's kind of the plight that... Um, you know, that I come across when 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 they do add people of color. Um, it's the fetishized part of, of black people, right, where it's like the athleticism or the music, you know, but um, not the full on acceptance of other forms of the of, you know, the people in the culture. Yeah. Uh, you feel like it comes through like a very specific lens. Definitely. Jesus, you said it perfectly. I mean, that was like, yeah, it comes through a specific lens. In some cases, it almost seems deliberate or active because there there are a ton of things that are out there. The more research that I actually did, because I didn't start really getting into Pan-Africanism and stuff like that until recently. I mean, I knew a lot of black artists and amongst our group, that was mm. OK, because that was what we kind of saw. Um, and then as I started getting older and, and found artists like LaShawn Thomas and stuff like that, I saw that, you know, they were sprinkling in people of color. And then I remember something my dad said to me when I was a kid and it just came out of nowhere. But I was like drawing and he was like, hey, how come you don't draw like people that look like you, like, you know, like other black people? And I'm just like thinking to myself, like, who wants to see that? Like, we never see that. And my show will never get made if like the main character is a black guy. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, but that was like me as a kid and thinking about that. And I, I just kind of hit me in a, in, in a certain place. And that was like, I think one of the defining factors to me, like making that changeover. But the moment I started researching into that, into the children of the diaspora and, and other parts of, you know, before going into Africa, but like black people in, in, you know, Brazil or in South America and stuff like that. And then the moment I got to Africa, I'm like, wow, there's a wealth of knowledge there. And that seems to be overlooked in a lot of mediums. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I felt like, man, anime, you know, they do so much research. If you research some of the things in some of the shows, like it's very deep. So I was so surprised that like, wow, you have this massive continent with all this stuff that just, you know, never really gets picked at, you know, right. um, it was just weird that it was just like this American lens of black people, really, that was kind of shown. Yeah. And I, I know that there is some level of westernization to anime, like specifically in the stylization of the characters. Sometimes, like, as you said, even even the storylines come from very westernized events. Like, I think of Attack on Titan and, and how I think Mikasa and Levi are, I think that those two characters are the only ones that are meant to be representative of an Asian culture, whereas everybody else pretty much seems Anglo-Saxon, I would say. So it's just, it's, it is interesting the, the way that the storylines, the characters, I guess it comes down to the illustrators and the creators, how selective they are of the material, um, and what stories it's just fascinating that like your dad asked you, you know, Mike, why don't you draw people that look like you? And you felt that characters who look like you wouldn't sell, you know, that, I mean, that's a whole larger issue. You're hitting a lot of points and I, and it's so true. It's like, 
you know, it, it wouldn't sell, but also it just, even though art imitates life, a lot of people take things, you know, they believe things that they see. Um, Paul Mooney said it in one of his skits, people believe things they see, even for mystical things or whatever it is. So, so when you don't see people of color doing some things, then even though it's, it's a fiction, you still don't believe that they can do those things, right? You know, recently I've been having conversations with my friends and I'm like, man, I'm nervous about the future because you watch all of these shows about the future and there's like no black people in it. One of the things I love is I love Dune. And as I watch the Dune movie, I'm like, man, well, you know, people of color really don't make it 2000 years from now. And the more things you watch, the more things you kind of see that, you know, we don't really have a place in the narrative a lot. So as a young creator, you know, when you start making things, you make things that you see and, yeah, you iterate off of them. But you, you know, you're like, OK, well, I know that people like this. And so you, you have a lot of young creators and all young creators of color draw that very kind of boisterous shonen type character. And they do the spiky hair and they make it, you know, either light colored or really dark colored or whatever. And it's all kind of the same vibe because they know that's what works or that's, you know, what they've already seen. So you just kind of keep making in that vein. And if you don't see it, then you don't believe it can, you know, you can really achieve that portion of it. You know, and it's uncomfortable to do things that are different. I'm glad you stopped by the table, but I was I was definitely very uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable at Anime NYC to a capacity because I was doing something that was that was fairly different. You know, I took a lap around and I saw everybody's work and I was like, I got really nervous because I saw a lot of fan art, which I don't really do because there's not a lot of people of color in fan art that I can do. And it was I did a lot of original work that was, as you saw, it was all people of color. And I'm like, this is going to be a hard day here, you know? Um, yeah. And there were a lot of people that walked by, you know, my table that was kind of like, what the hell is this? And there were a lot of people of color, too, that kind of gave me side eyes that were kind of like, you know, like she's trying to like bring this black agenda thing to this anime thing that we love. And it was, you know. That's why in my speech, when I was telling people, it's, it's not a slight against anime. Like, I love anime. You know, I just I want to contribute people of color to the narrative, to the conversation. That was all. That's part of the thing is, is a, especially to see these young creators when they're making things, creators of color um, or even, you know, of any other marginalized group, you know, making characters that are binary or cisgendered or something like that, even though they may be from the queer community. It's like. You know, they, they stick within a comfort zone because they don't know if the other thing is going to be as accepted. That's how I felt as a kid. I mean, man, that's how I felt as a young adult. That's sad. You know, I mean, thinking about it now, having this conversation with you, yeah. that it took me into my mid-20s to, to make that transition. Typed out just to keep coming back to it because you and I didn't really have the chance to talk at Anime NYC to the length that I would have liked to, to really introduce what the platform does. But Typed Out came from a conversation that I was having with somebody about representation or identity in things like film, literature, you name it. You know, basically where you hope to see yourself represented in a way that helps alleviate that pressure of saying, I'm not alone. I'm valid. I'm worthy. I should be in these spaces. I should be included in the future. Speaking to societal pressures and how we try to replicate what is acceptable, right? What you were saying is stepping outside of that comfort zone to do something that is challenging and different and getting that side eye from people where it's like, well, why are you trying, like you said, trying to bring a certain agenda to something? And people may perceive that as jeopardy 
to something that they love. But it's like, no, why can't this be expansive? Why can't it be inclusive? One of the other conversations, in fact, I think the conversation that I was like, I need to talk to this guy was when you were saying that you are going out and trying to gain the perspective of people that are different from you. You said you were looking into hearing from the LGBTQ community, hearing from the disabled community, just different spaces that you as an artist, as a creator, were willing to step into to hear other people's stories so that you could hopefully tie that into your work. I think that is incredible. Oh, thank you. I, yeah, I just, like at one point, I just felt like it was not enough to say, okay, like I want to add people of color to the narrative and have that conversation and then say, okay, now that I'm doing this and I'm trying to kind of fight for this normalization of this thing, how can I look back and then see that other people are also fighting for that normalization? Once I started thinking about that, like, you know, I have some characters that may be amputees and stuff like that and and, and just trying to think, okay, well, I just don't want to kind of add it now without any without any real understanding or context of what these people kind of go through on a day-to-day basis or like having characters that are, that seem very gender neutral. You know, I'll get messages about that and, and I have to kind of correct people, like, why is that a thing? Like, I did a Karama um, I was like doing certain versions of like, you know, Hunter, um, excuse me, uh, Yu Yu Hakusho. Mm-hmm. And I did a, a Karama and he was very kind of like non-gender binary. And someone was like, well, why'd you make him a girl? I'm like, well, he's not, I, he wouldn't identify as a female. You know what I mean? Like even in the show, he was kind of glorified by like men and women. Like he could, he could do, or he or she could do whatever he or she wanted to do. Like I wanted to do something that was mostly, you know, that was, that was very different, but add that into the narrative. But then it's like, you know, I have to understand stuff about pronouns. Like I can't, there's some people who just do that and like, oh yeah, my character's queer. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, like if sexuality is a spectrum, like now learning that stuff, like what does that mean? Where does that person swing? Because then they can do this or that, like just informing that. So that way, another person who sees that character who might identify with that character, it doesn't, it doesn't feel phony or false or, you know, um, the only way I can really describe it is like I'm, I'm, I was watching Black Lightning earlier this week and then I was watching Cloak and Dagger. As I'm watching the two different, you know, uh, networks, I'm like, I can see the network that has a lot more black writers that are tied to it and how much more authentic the conversations and the writing is to it. Yeah. And as someone, you know, who lived that experience, I'm like, I get it right away. Oh, I can tell that this is not entirely written by people of color, even people of color who come from certain affluent areas like just the the way they they're moving and conversationally and stuff like that like it wasn't acting as much as is it's the conflict of writing it you know what i mean and and so it goes to show without having that experience of those kind of people in the room or trying to understand that then it doesn't come off as as authentic um so what i wanted to do was i wanted to just find those spaces where I could just learn. And then when I started learning that, I'm like, well, then there there are creators who are creating in those spaces and I don't want to step on their, their toes and I don't want to, you know, affect them trying to create their stories. And so yeah. it's been a balance of trying to, you know, trying to be inclusive on all ends for myself with also not stepping into someone else's lane and stopping them from coming up and, and into that conversation as well. Yeah. It's a continued investigation, right? Because there's always somebody to include in the conversation. But through your research, through your work, Mike, have you found something that kind of works for you as far as wanting to tell a specific story and then seeing how these characters fit into that story? Or is it maybe 
character centric and then figuring out how the story works around that person's journey? Recently, I've been trying to focus more on, I've been doing a lot of research on like, you know, the hero's journey uh, to that capacity and really the characteristics within that. And then when I start thinking about those other aspects of it, you know, like that person's love interest may be or where some of their struggles may come from, whether it's poverty or, you know, certain other plights and stuff like that. I kind of see how those things fit into the narrative to then change that character. And as far as like the research goes and stuff like that, I try to be very open to a lot of things. I also try to like watch things that are not necessarily in my comfort zone per se, like even with trying to research and understand more things about the LBGTQ community, you know, I come my family, the Islanders are Caribbean. So they have had an issue historically with the LBGTQ community. You know, a lot of black people have had issues with that, you know, in in our culture. And so I had to start, I had to really step outside of what was considered my comfort zone to learn about, you know, more things and to become more open. This started really mostly in college, but then when I started to want to start adding those aspects to my story, I had to watch stories that were written and directed by people from those communities. One, that's incredible, Mike, the fact that you are willing to step out of your comfort zone to learn about something that a community, a culture might not otherwise truly be on board with. So speaking as somebody from the queer community, thank you. That's incredible. Oh, it's honestly, it's, it's really been my pleasure because, you know, it's, it's opened me up to better experiences and to like better life experiences, but just meeting really great people and stuff like that. And, you know, like there was a guy at, at Anime NYC and I had to start like correcting people in my family and stuff like that too. Cause like, you know, up until maybe two years ago going to Thanksgiving and hearing a lot of homophobic jokes and stuff like that. And after being in college and having friends who were gay and lesbian and then just kind of, you know, going back home and hearing the stuff and not really speaking up or saying as much and just kind of being like, you know, this isn't cool, especially knowing that there has to be somebody in my family, you know, that's experiencing this or having to hear this secretly. Just being able to go back and kind of say certain things about it or, or you know, bring it up. And, and even at Anime NYC, some guy came up to me. He was seeing a lot of um, my characters, and stuff like that, black guy. And he was with his son and he was like, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of stuff out here for men and black men. He's like, you know, I see a lot of guys here and, you know, they're wearing dresses and all this other stuff. And I said, yo, I'm going to stop you right there. You know, as far as influences and everything else like that, like some people, it's not about influence. Some of these people, this is who they are. This is this is their comfort zone that has nothing to do per se with what they're basically seeing. You know what I'm saying? In some yeah. cases, maybe maybe it makes them feel more comfortable to be who they want to be. I said, yo, you're his dad, you, you know, you're, you'll be an influence for him or whatever. I was like, but there's a million things out there for quote unquote boys to be able to see or whatever. And I, I have a daughter myself. And I said, you know, as someone who has a daughter of color and trying to find things for her, you know, I'm like there are things that are out there, but I'm seeing there's not a lot of things for her per se. But I, you know, I just kind of wanted to, to stop him there and just kind of be like, nah, man, like what you're seeing is not something that's in the brain or that's some odd influence based on some media thing. Like, no, some of these people feel comfortable being who they are because they can see certain things. You know, I'm like, you of all people as a, as a marginalized person of color should know that, should know that, that that's not necessarily influencing whether people of color are doing this, that, and the other thing, but making them feel comfortable and that it's normalized that they can be who they want to be. 
you know, and he was, he was, he was pretty receptive to it. You know, he, he gave me dap at the end of it and was just kind of like, cool. But, you know, I, I was just, and I was actually sitting next to someone who seemed to be a part of the queer community. And so I just, you know, I just kind of, I didn't want to let that cook, um, yeah. you know, but I think it, it's important, you know, and I think it was easier for me to kind of step out of my comfort zone in this capacity because in other parts of my life, I had to learn how to step outside of my comfort zone to grow. And so this just became one of those other things. First of all, I want to say to to anyone that might be listening to this, Mike, your example, that is the first level of allyship. It happens on those small levels like that, where it's maybe with your family or a one-on-one interaction like the, the guy that you were speaking about from Anime NYC. When somebody says something in your circle that is transphobic, homophobic, racist, any level of bigotry, and you let it go unchecked, but yet you know better... When you step up and say something, that is the first level of allyship and playing an active part in defending a community. Because when we let those things slip by, we perpetuate that behavior. So thank you for doing that. That is, that's awesome. And such an example. Thank you for that. You know, it's almost hard to take credit too, because it's just, you know, there are people that are out there that, you know, we're asking the same thing, you know, as a person of color, I'm asking the same thing of, you know, a white person that's out there because half the time my voice is not necessarily recognized, you know, the same way. I watched an interview with the grandson, I think it was, of David Duke or the son of David Duke. And he was saying one of the worst things that they feared is when another white person would come up to them and be like, no, you're wrong. And because then they have to see that person at the, as the same level as them. You know, having seen that example of other white people kind of step up and be like, nah, that's not right. For people of color, it was really just me kind of following that example, just having to say something about it. And it doesn't, you know, like with that guy, like I didn't get hostile with him or anything. I was just like, hey, man, like, you know, I understand what you're trying to say, but it's just coming off. You're not getting it. I wasn't I wasn't ready to have a full-fledged conversation with him about right. the problematic aspects of his thought process, but I wanted to put it into a term that he could quite understand, you know, as well as just being like, hey, it's not very cool. There's some learning that you may have to do, and, and your problem is not with TV or some something, you know, turning your kids into something you think they're not. You know what I mean? Like, it's these people being able to see a representation of who they are and feeling comfortable about being who they are out in public. And so that to me was more what I could reference within that. And as far as you're saying like allyship, you know, I would even say one of the first things is to like educate yourself, like stepping up definitely. But like, I couldn't really step up and, and really combat that stuff unless I had a little better understanding, you know, of what I needed to say to him. Right. Kind of understand. And it's like, you want to definitely be knowledgeable. You want to kind of step out and try to cross the boundary that you might not have before. Um, one of the things I've heard is, you know, for people who feel a certain way, is like, you know, racism doesn't hold up to exposure. You know, it doesn't. If you're a person who doesn't like a person of color, or, you know, a Mexican person or whatever, and you hear these stories about like, well, I had to work with this Mexican guy. And I just recognized that he and I were exactly the same. It could be with talking to a person. It could be, you know, through certain mediums. I had, I felt like a transcending experience watching uh, Sense8. There was a moment in Sense8 where I felt like I had, I was trying to be an ally and I was, I felt like I was being an ally in a wrong way. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And there was a moment 
in Sensei where uh, Leto goes to South America and he's going to talk at the parade and he's sitting there and it's two men or whatever or one man comes over and he sits in another man's lap and he gives him a kiss right and he's watching the whole experience and that experience for me was kind of transcendent because you know up until that point you know like I felt like ah you know I'm okay with gay people and lesbian people like showing affection in public and everything else like that and it wasn't necessarily normalized to me so it made me feel like I, I, there was something inside me that felt a little away because I didn't recognize that it was no different than any relationship that I had ever had. And by watching that scene, for some reason, it just all clicked to me that it wasn't that they were different and it was OK, but that there was no difference. That is exactly the same way that I feel about my female partner is that person feels about their male partner. And, you know, just and, and I thought, you know, but based on all the research and, you know, you know, kind of sticking up for people and doing whatever that I was kind of on the right path of that. And you know, like, they're different and it's okay. And, and you should let them be different and da, 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 opposed to seeing it as like, no, you guys aren't getting it. There's no real difference. This person cares about this person. And that's all that really matters. There are a lot of ways to get to that point, but learning and like trying to learn about it is very important. And, and, and there's so many ways you can do it. Um, I guess that was, I know I ran off on a tangent a little bit, but that was the point I was trying to get at is, you know, there, there are things that you can learn and moments that you can get from, you know, just crossing that barrier. Yeah. We are ever the teacher and the student at the same time. Always. You can't see because we're on opposite sides of a computer with no video, but I am smiling so big right now because just to to hear it put in those words of it's not it's different and okay, but it's the same is exactly it on on every level for everything, for every community, every person. It's not that it's different and yet we're practicing tolerance toward it. It's like, no, it's because these things are okay. It's okay. Exactly as you were saying with the gentleman that you were speaking and his son at Anime NYC, it's like, it's not what TV or literature or film or any sort of outside exposure is going to turn your kid into, right? It's not, I don't believe that these mediums have that sort of effect that they can create a person. What they do is they help this person discover themselves. And all we can do is give our children and the people around us the tools to hopefully do what is right. And once they have a good ethical system, right, of knowing not hurting somebody else and the meaning of consent and, you know, always hold yourself with a sense of integrity and, you know, whatever. We could go on for days as far as the things that should hopefully make up a good person. But it's like, what makes you you? It's okay to find bits and pieces of yourself or rediscover, as it were, not even necessarily find, but rediscover who you are as you get older and you become exposed to different things and things challenge you. And, you know, I love that you constantly bring up, Mike, how the challenges have transformed you because it's truly those challenges that encourage us to grow, that make us grow, you know, not even encourage. It's through sometimes adversity where we're forced to think differently, to be different to act differently, you know? Absolutely. There's a lot of stuff. And I agree, like can't make a person and stuff like that. And it helps you discover things. I think I I get a lot of my fight from certain things that I I have seen in anime because it like has given me the courage to fight more for certain things or to do whatever. But I think that was a really strong point. It just kind of helps you discover who you are or who you can be with defining certain morals and and everything else. Like your parents can instill those things in you to, you know, consent and being a good person and, you know, so on and so forth. But then like, you know, you have these mediums that are really meant to show, at least for what I watch, 
is that people can be courageous and people can fight for more and that there's always a little more left in this tank to be a stronger or better person in a bunch of different capacities. So, you know, I, I like you said, as a student and teacher, there's still a lot more that I have to learn and consume. And, you know, there are other creators and stuff like that that I still need to get involved with and, and, and you know, on a learning level. So that way I can keep growing and keep rediscovering, you know, new things uh, about myself and the way to see the world. You're, you're very, I mean, the way you can kind of take the things that I'm saying and really nail down the wording for it is great. It's definitely making making it easy. Thanks. You are my, I think, fifth podcast recording ever. So <laughs> it's or it might be under 10, I think, at this point. But um, yeah, no, it's it's just give and take conversation. You know, whatever. Again, it's coming back to the teacher and student. We all have things to learn and and how we influence one another. So the way that I'm able to to shape things is coming off of your great thoughts. I wanted to to tell back, Mike, to your experience at Anime NYC and, and you saying how you felt a little out of place there. Can you speak a bit more to that? Did people stop by other than myself and celebrate your work or mention interest or? Clearly, there were a lot more people of color that stopped at my table that were really excited about it than any other kind of group per se. I was talking with somebody too about it. It's just that there were like certain sets of people that you felt more comfortable coming up to me and having that conversation. Started first with people of color because they would walk by and even though they didn't understand or know like any of the characters, I would kind of throw out the line like, hey, it's just kind of people of color in anime. Um, you know, and then I would go into inspired by Pan-African mythology and lore. They would kind of stop and, and everything else. But then it was like, then right after that, it might have been like, you know, I say beige people. So like anybody that <laughs> Spanish or, you know, any type of person of color, like right after that, that might not might not be, you know, from the African diaspora. Um, and then it was maybe like white people. But then it was like rarely any Asian people stopped by mm -hmm. my table. It was almost like they made an active effort to kind of walk in an ellipsis around kind of what I was doing. And um, and I, you know, it's funny, I wasn't upset. I get it. Like, I totally get it. As yeah. someone who in his 20s, you know, late 20s, didn't make the transition to start drawing people of color. That's not even saying drawing all people of color. I just started sprinkling some in. So, you know, um, it wasn't until later to say like, well, you know, I'm a black person and I, you know, I see other artists who are, you know, are white or um, and they just draw, you know, characters that look like them and there's no problem. And so I was just saying to myself, why can't I do that? Like, why can't I just draw a bunch of people that look like me and people from my culture and community and there just shouldn't be a problem you know but i've gotten messages via my phone that's like how can you talk about equality and all you do is draw black people and i'm just kind of like well i'm trying to normalize it because some of my favorite artists don't draw black people at all you know yeah. and so you know it's not about saying oh you know here's equality let me draw everybody together it's like i have to almost like dump a lot more into the pot so that it's normalized for more people to kind of see you know what i'm saying it's like you know i watch a show like walking dead it's like we can only you know up until recently they got uh they got some crap for it but it's like you know having one black person on at a time yeah. The moment a new black person would come on screen for Walking Dead, like me and my friends would be like, all right, well, this person's going to die. It's like you can't you can't be more than two. And one thing that really you know irks me with some of the some of the things that they may do. And this is just using them as an example. Walking Dead. It's like it started off in Atlanta. Atlanta is like the black capital. 
you know, and it's like what, like one or two black people like made it out, like you know, right. and it's just like, you know, and I watch that, and I'm like, man, you know, and there's a lot of Indian people too in Atlanta, and so there's just parts where it's like. Man, you really missed the block where you could have had a cast that had a lot more black people in it and speckled with other people and, you know, on something that's mainstream and it would have helped normalize it. So it's like, why do I make a predominantly amount of people of color? It's like, because I kind of got to add more to the pot for people to be able to see in the show normalizing certain things, showing black couples together on regular mainstream television, you know, not just putting black and white people together and be like, hey, here's equality. It's like, Okay, totally understand that. That's really great. But why not show black people who are in relationships with other black people, you know, in regular shows or whatever that are on there? Because that's a real thing. You have black women having a problem or feeling like they have a problem finding, you know, a black partner. Whereas in, you know, a lot of other cultures, it's not so much like that, you know? So it's like, you know, those kind of things. So that it was weird being there because I I knew that their people were going to feel uncomfortable. And, you know, I felt a little uncomfortable, too. But as a friend said to me, he's like, you know, how are you making these drawings for people to feel comfortable? And then you being uncomfortable, you know, like having to show the drawings like, you know, I was having a debate on whether I was going to do fan art or not for this for Anime NYC. And I decided not to because of what he had said to me. And I was like, I have to show that I'm comfortable doing this. I have to show that it's okay and that it can be normalized. Or else other people are not going to feel comfortable with it either. And so I just I felt like I just jumped into the deep end with all original characters showcasing what I was trying to do and just being like, you know, I have to understand that it's not going to get full acceptance right away. But yeah. what I want to do is I want to show people that it is out there and that there is a there is a want for it. And, and yeah, and, and, and it was also hard seeing other people of color there who were artists who were not doing that. Because then I was just like, damn, like, you know, I almost feel like I, I, I am now more so even out of place because like I see other black artists here, but they're doing other things. But you know what? Keep doing it. I'm championing you 100%. Like the thing is, if you don't begin to push the boundary or actually this makes me think of a conversation that I was having with Jason Hess. He's a author from South Africa that I also interviewed. And he was saying that like, it's not about giving consistently giving the people what they want. It's about giving people what they don't know they want yet. One thing I think of, I don't know if you're familiar with the anime Yuri on Ice. I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it yet. It's one of my favorites, so I I strongly encourage. But it highlights a gay relationship, which doesn't happen in anime, okay? Doesn't happen in my limited scope of, of the anime that I have seen. But I also know because I happen to have an affinity for Japanese culture and a friend of mine is Japanese and just having conversations about the queer community in Japan, it's really not a thing that's acknowledged, to, to my understanding and through her understanding where she comes from in Japan, it's kind of like a gay? What's that? Like, I don't understand. Like, it doesn't, the concept of it doesn't really sink into the older generations. And so when you see something like Yuri on Ice that highlights a relationship between two male characters that from my exposure to anime, which I've been watching since I was, you know, I'm I'm 33 now, and I think my first exposure to anime was when I was about 13, so 20-ish years. Um, I never saw 
gay characters in anime. I mean, there would be interesting takes on gender here and there. And then I sometimes you could be like, okay, well, that's questionable, but it would never be explicit. And so to to see a storyline that highlights the relationship between two men, I was like, wow, this is groundbreaking. Now it's one of the most popular anime series uh, in the past couple years. I've seen it in a lot of places. And a friend of mine was like, you got to watch your eyes. He's like, if you liked Haikyuu and you liked well thought and well telling of like stories and a combination of, you know, music and animation and everything else, he's like, you're, you're going to really love your Yuri on Ice. And I'm like, yeah. I gotta find the time to watch it. And I didn't even know that it highlighted a relationship like that. So now I even have more of a charge to actually go and watch it. Um, but how do you feel about like the relationship? Do you feel like it was captured authentically do you feel like you know because sometimes as someone who's marginalized i like if i see a black character in something i'm just like thank god he's in there you know what i mean yeah Uh, regardless of how it's told do you feel like it's told or represented really well or i do um so here's the thing i actually just recently read a little bit of backstory as to where the creators kind of developed it and took it and shied away from what certain studios were encouraging them to do to immediately answer your question mike It is probably one of my favorite portrayals of a gay relationship in any kind of media. Off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it's two female creators that one is the story writer and the other is the illustrator. And two women, and I don't know how they identify, nor to me does it matter because they told the story well and I felt like I was justified in a way that they they didn't have to explain that these characters were gay. They just were. Nobody asked them about it. Nobody, there was no coming out. There was no, like, all of the drama had to do with the pressure of competition. It had to do with fulfilling dreams and then also with the relationship that was unfolding. I don't want to give anything away to the storyline, but it was just, it really focused on what was happening between Yuri and Victor and those around them. And it didn't exploit it in any kind of way that it felt watered down to make it A, palatable, which I have a huge issue with. And B, it just felt as if these characters existed in a world where this was just normal and nobody questioned it. Not a parent, not a friend. It was also nice to not see them othered by it, but also have any sort of a negative response. They were just them in love and Oh, it's beautiful. Anyway, so I, I strongly encourage it because it is one of my favorites. Check it out, then. I, especially if the way you kind of broke it down, as far as like it wasn't this weird, you know, plot device thing that they put in, and they like spent so much time agonizing, you know, over it as a thing. But it was like you said, it was normalized. Like really, it's set upon the challenge of skating and everything else, and their relationship was a part of it. But it was just as normal as like Kiko and and Yusuke Urameshi, where it was just like. It, that was this thing. That's not the main plot point or whatever. They're in a relationship. They secretly like each other. And there's this thing going back and forth or whatever. They don't want to tell the next person, you know, but it wasn't this thing where it was so in your face or hokey. And that's one of the things I find, like when there isn't enough research or something that things just don't, like you said, it feels like watered down or, you know, not authentic or whatever. It's, you know, it it was just, it felt natural. You know, you yeah. said that's that's what's like important. I would love to see it. And I hear the animation and stuff like that is really good. So it, it's awesome to also just get a full as full in all capacities. Absolutely. And the, the thing that I really appreciate is that this was the story that the the writer wanted to tell. 
you know? And, and from what I was reading in the article, it was like one of the studios that she had pitched the idea to. I don't know if it was necessarily something against the gay storyline, but they really wanted to target a specific audience. And she was saying, no, that's like, that doesn't fall in line with with what I want to do. And I love the fact that she held to her integrity and the integrity of her story, because sometimes it's so easy to bend to the requests of a financial backer, someplace like a studio that is willing to support your work and put your work out there. And I appreciate the fact that she said no and continued to tell the story that she told and look at the success of it. Yeah. I mean, it's phenomenal. And I think too, um, you know, and I, and I've said to people before, like, um, the nerd community is accepting to a capacity, but not that much. But it's weird because there is like a plethora of other quote unquote otherness or others in this group, you know, of people who are like fandom or nerd them and everything else like that. And it's great because, you know, she could see that and who knows what they identify with, like you said before, but they saw that there are people that will thoroughly appreciate the storytelling the way it already is um and that's i mean that to me is amazing one thing that really ticked me off recently is i love the last of us it's a the video game the new last of us came out and the gameplay is un it's unbelievable it's it's unbelievable and as i'm watching i'm like this is going to change video games as it is like this is just utterly phenomenal you're playing as ellie you know everything else like that and all people kept talking about was before the gameplay came on they're at this little barn thing it's like a post-apocalyptic thing and they're just actually having a celebration and a girl comes up to her starts dancing with her or whatever and it just felt to me it felt natural now i'm not someone who's like you know a, a part of the queer, the queer community so you know it's like i my experience is one that's very external and I'm watching and I'm like, wow, like they were having a conversation and Ellie felt a little uncomfortable because she didn't know where the girl kind of lied, you know, on that line, you could tell she kind of had a thing for her. And the other girl was just like having this conversation with her. And then you could see it start to become a little bit more intimate. And then she kisses her. It felt like you could have replaced Ellie with me and it would have been no different. You know, it was just kind of like this really natural thing. And so I'm like, oh, my God, this game is going to be it's going to be effing phenomenal. Like just I I was I'm so excited to play it. Right. And the worst thing I could do was look at these IGN comments and it was like all about like, oh, it's going to be this social justice warrior thing. And like now she's going to be lesbian and blah, 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 like all these comments. And I just started writing these insane paragraphs of stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to send it. I was like, because I jumped in these comments, I see how crazy people are being. And I'm like, they just don't get it. And for those people who don't get it yet, they need to find their learning somewhere else besides someone yelling at them. You know what I'm saying? Over the internet, this game is going to be phenomenal. And people who are gamers are going to see it and be like, yo, this is going to be great. But then sometimes it's so hard for people to really look past that stuff. And I, I don't get it. You know, it's like really hard to be like, we're, you're here to play the game. This, this part of the narrative felt so natural. I was a little bit upset by the nerd community, you know, a community that at one point was highly marginalized for playing video games and all this other stuff and people not seeing them for who they were, you know, and what they liked in games and everything else like that. And then to kind of see their response to it, I was like disappointed. And I found that a lot in a lot of, you know, other um, articles and stuff like that. So it's great that Yuri on Ice caught on the way it did. 
and for people who have watched it, you know, to, to, you know, like yourself who have been like, this is amazing. I've never seen this before done in this capacity in any medium. Yeah. Uh, well, two things, two things off of that. One, I love how people take the idea of the social justice warrior and turn it into something so negative. Just like, how dare you want, you know, equity and like <laughs> human rights for everyone? How dare you, you evil overlord? So that cracks me up. It's just like, I understand where it can sometimes hinder the story because it's so blatantly obvious and you're not, one, you're just putting people in there for the sake of putting them in there and not really holding true to their story. Just circling back to Yuri on Ice and The Walking Dead. With Yuri on Ice, it's when you tell the story of male figure skaters, some of them are, are gay. So like, it would be a disservice to make them straight. They don't necessarily fit in that, in that world. The same with, as you were saying about The Walking Dead, like Atlanta having lived there, yes, is predominantly black. So the cast also should be because it is representative of the people that live there. So if you're going to tell the story that is based in a specific location or it happens to be a sport, tell the story of the people that are actually participating in that story. Don't transplant people in there just because this is the mainstream representation. Sorry, but tell that story somewhere else because that's where it belongs. But yeah, you're right. It's like, you know, you're going to tell a Walking Dead story in Atlanta. Like you said, it's like one black dude on there and like one racist guy. Like, come on, come on, man. (laughs) And I love Walking Dead. Like, I loved it. I watched it Every, there's a lot of stuff people of color or people in these marginalized groups like they love you know the show that's being made of that thing even though it's like oddly like you said transplanting people in and not really telling the full story of those people there was i entertained yes but then i see it every week and be like come on man right. you know what i mean like i feel like it is going to take time and it's going to take those kind of you know black panthery moments and in my opinion since eight was one of those moments for me where you know, there were some things that I, I felt like that might have been, you know, a little problematic on some other ends. But as far as, you know, how it helped me, I thought it was really great. Um, and I thought, you know, always the, the Wachowski siblings are always trying to do things that push more toward the future of thinking and the idea of like the whole binary thinking is going to be weird. Like I was thinking about my daughter and I'm like, it's going to get to a point where people are just going to like each other. And they're just like, Oh, like, what do you, you know, like, what are you into out outside of this thing? You know what I mean? It's just not the other stuff is not really going to matter as much. Um, and I felt like sense eight was kind of hitting along that because it was these eight people that were just connected in a multitude of different ways. And some of them identified as straight and some of them identified as bi and some of them, you know, were trans. And, and, and you know, it was just like this whole kind of different aspect. It was just bringing you to a different view of life that people do identify as. But if you're in your own little silo, your own little echo chamber kind of thing, you never get an opportunity, comfort zone, you never get an opportunity to see that this is another world of things and really that's where the world is kind of really trending toward and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because it's all predicated on what you know who we care for and how we care about people um, which i don't see as a wrong thing it's one of those things where you know getting the right people in to tell the right stories as you were saying you know telling the story of that place telling the story of those things and i'm hoping that hollywood and some of those areas are going to start being able to do that but i you know I think it'll take a while. Once there's, you know, 
if there's more than two black people in something, it becomes a black thing. So yeah. my thing is I'm just trying, and I'm sure you know that, like if there's like two or more gay people in something, it's like, all right, well now it goes on logo or something like that, or it becomes right. like, <laughs> gay people. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I think, um, I'm going to try to make something that is mainstream, that has a lot of people of color in it. And the same way I watch Naruto and I'm like, I like it. And as a person of color, you know, I'm just like, hey, I identify with some of the characters on there. I identify with some of the stuff. So why can't white people, if I make something where characters are predominantly of color, can't look at a character and be like, yo, I identify with Sakufo. Like, I like his character for whatever it is. And that person's mind is going to be far more expanded, in my opinion, than like my mind or my daughter's mind or another young black person's mind, because everything that we do is already inundated with so much of, you know, Western culture already, if I said to someone like, yo, who's Zeus or who is uh, Thor or who is Odin, they would know who that person was, a black person, an Asian person, a Spanish person, and be like, oh, yeah, he's the Norse god or whatever it is. But if I was like, who's Ogun or who's Yemaye or who's, you know, Ukutsi, they they would be like, I don't know who that is. I'm like, same same type of mythology is a god of thunder, god of whatever, but... This person comes from your culture. You know, this person comes from a connected background as you. You know, we we have gods or, you know, we have certain things or technologies or things that add to us as a people. And I feel like, you know, if I went to a white person, I was like, who's Ogun? They'd be like, I don't know. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like, I know that that is. So it's one of those things where I'm going to still try to fight for that. And I think it's possible. I think it, I definitely think it is possible. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And it's the thing of like coming back to just telling that story, consistently telling that story and challenging and giving people what it is that they don't know that they want yet you know and it's do it mike take it all the way (laughs) so i mean you don't need me to to tell you that but just know that there are people out there supporting you in what you do so i appreciate that you know oh god oh I i wanted to ask you more about your work about the things that you're creating where can we find them and i know that you had mentioned earlier on in the interview that there were certain pan african mythologies and lore that inspire your work and i was wondering if there was some insight that you could shed as to which stories influence you the most or figures or any of that um yeah so i mean i right now you know i'm influenced a lot by the uh yoruban lore and that's kind of like a west african religious system basically with uh, that's polytheistic um, and it's very similar to Greek pantheon. Um, you know, there's an all father. He has basically kids and their kids are connected to certain elements. But then, you know, in certain parts of African culture, you know, there are gods that are, you know, there's a god for corn. You know what I mean? Or there's a god for, you know, uh, uh, smaller things within agriculture and stuff like that. So as of right now, I'm inspired a lot by the uh, Yoruban mythology or religion. But I pull from a lot of different ideas and from really all across the continent. Right now, I'm doing some research on Great Zimbabwe. You know, I was understanding that some of the first kind of castles were built in Africa. Some of them were built in Nubia and everything else like that and and uh, in Ethiopia. And it's just like, that's incredible to me because every other story told about Africa is like we live in flatlands and grass huts and stuff. You know? Yeah. And so that's the thing. There's so much more that's kind of deeper down there. So so I take a lot from that. When I do try to tell stories or whatever, I haven't written a full official story for my characters yet. A lot of it is side backstory, and I have a lot of outlines. Um, I'm still very self-conscious about my work, so I haven't really quite started storyboarding a lot of my comics out and stuff like that yet. It's just all kind of written down. 
And when I do put these stories together, though, and I'm writing my whole kind of world Bible and stuff, I try to take an approach of an uncolonized Africa. Sometimes it takes place in the future. Sometimes it takes place in now. But it's just like what would have happened, you know, if, you know, all these other countries that take a lot of precious minerals and stuff like that, that we use to make cell phones and everything else from Africa, if there was no outside corruption, if, you know, the infrastructure was set up to basically collect the money from a lot of the precious metals, stones and all that other stuff that comes from Africa, how would it have progressed and, you know, what the cities and stuff like that would look like? And then I use a lot of the the commonplace names that Africans call the places, not their discoverers. So I don't really refer... Egypt as Egypt per se, I refer to it as Kemet, you know, or upper or lower Kemet, because that was what it was called by the people who basically lived there. Or like Nigeria and a lot of the Western African culture that I like to research, I don't call it Nigeria, I call it Benin. So if, I, if it takes place in like, you know, the near future, I'll call it Neo Benin or something like that. And so I think that's nice because then it forces people to do research into the continent and then learn about certain things. And there are certain, you know, aspects of a st- stories that I have. Like, for example, the main story that I want to try to release next year um, in July, it's called Iku the Keeper. And it's basically like a combination of Godfather uh, and Naruto kind of combined. (laughs) Interesting. uh, Yeah, it's a... It's basically about this kid. He he grows up in Neo Benin, and there's five different districts, and all the districts are owned or, or ran by an omen hene, which is basically like a king or a mob boss. So the same way you know Italians will use capo or uh, you know as the head guy or whatever. An omen hene is the same thing. Back in the day, that would have been a village leader or king or something. And he grows up in this one zone that doesn't have an omen hene. And it's called the lawless area and stuff like that. Him and his little group, his Scrabble, they try to survive there and stuff. And, you know, they're making their own little way. And and it's on his birthday and they want to kind of celebrate the little bit of successes that they have. And his best friend is found dead. Doesn't come to his birthday. is found dead, basically. And um, the story ultimately kind of starts there. And he figures out, you know. Who, why his friend was killed, who ends up killing him is the guy that is supposed to be the next Omen Hene of, you know, this lawless area. And is hopefully that will bring law to the area and stuff like that, uh, which will then make it a better area for most people. Granted, it'll be under, you know, like mafia law, essentially, uh, but it won't just be as wild. And uh, he doesn't really care about that. And he basically kills the guy anyway. And the other Omen Hene are confused they don't know what to do because they're like well we can't let him get away with this but we need law to be brought into the lawless zone so they allow him to be the next omen hene but uh in doing so they kind of plot against him so it's almost his rise into power to kind of straighten out this area but then also to stave off any attacks or anything that might be happening on the other end from these other omen hene um and so where a lot of the culture and stuff like that comes in is, you know, I pull a lot of inspiration from African masks. So when the five families meet, they all wear the mask of their own group, you know, and they never really show their faces and stuff like that. All those masks have particular meanings. Um, the power based ability in or the magic system, I'm doing quotations, uh, I can't think <laughs> is set upon instead of using like spirit energy or chi or anything like that, in the Yoruban lore, they use Ashe, and Ashe basically is like life energy. And the more people to come together, the more Ashe is amongst them. So how it works is with their gangs, the larger their gangs are, the more energy they basically have. And each gang is, has a patron from the mythology. 
um, which gives them certain abilities and stuff like that. So when Iku kills this guy, he gets the patronage of Iku the Debt Keeper, which is the god of death and war in the Euroman lore. And so the ability that his crew is kind of granted is like this absolute kind of silence, right? And so they can create silent areas. They can be absolutely silent. And that's because you can't really see your death coming. You know what I mean? And so um, all the abilities kind of stem off of certain things within the culture, the clothing, uh, the style in which the buildings takes place. Uh, in the world building Bible, I have I have a little main areas and statues and stuff like that that I kind of want to have shown and people kind of talk about or things happen that will speak to some of the history, the real history of Nigeria or Benin. So that's how I kind of weave it in. I don't think I'm doing anything that is um, reinventing the wheel. I'm literally just taking the same formula that you know anime may do or that any storytelling does. And I'm just pulling a lot of my inspiration just from the African continent. Yeah. Uh, I think it just sounds interesting because when I say certain things that people haven't heard of, that's what I'm going for. The moment it becomes mainstream, I don't think I'll have a job anymore because then everybody will know it. And, and my stories, I feel like, will be <laughs> pretty regular. But that's like that's the main story I kind of want to tell starting next year. And I've been doing a lot of practice as far as better you know, facial expressions and everything else like that. And I have plans to incorporate a lot of things there. You know, I found out, I want to say maybe two years ago, that up until Western religion was really bought into certain parts of Africa, homosexuality was accepted to some capacity, and that same-sex marriages were accepted to some capacity. I, yeah, it's fucking crazy to me, especially being a, a, a person of color and how often we fight you know, about that stuff. I mean, we coined the phrase DL because of that, you know? And so I got to find the interview, too, because there was a, a big—there was an interview with a— um, Damn, I got to find it. It was an interview with this woman who's an activist down there, and she was talking about it. And I think she identified as, as lesbian. And she was just like, yeah, like, there's this thing where, you know, before Western religion, like, it, it, it was, it was, it's not that it was fairly common. It just wasn't frowned upon. It just was a thing. Like, okay, like, this thing happens. It's just normal. And so not, it didn't become a problem until Western religion really came into it or until, like, not Western religion, but, like, uh, um, Catholicism and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so I want to include that in my story. I want to show that, like, that it was, a, you know, if this was an uncolonized version of Africa and things just progressed naturally, right, then I want to be able to show that that was just a natural thing that just happens. There was no debate about it. Yeah. Um, so I want to, you know, I want to play around with that aspect of it. Um, and just make sure I'm including it in the right way and, and, um, have things that I want to do. Iku the Keeper is probably the first project that I want to release in 2019, mid 2019. Um, and then I'm hoping to do like my first chapter on Topastic, hopefully, um, in, in July. And I just want to, you know, hopefully we'll see the response from there. Um, and, and, and I, and I hope that it's something that, you know, will resonate with people, not just with people of color, but, you know, with everybody. Yeah. I cannot wait to see that anime because I'm putting you at that level. I cannot wait to see that anime on like Crunchyroll, which is the way that I watch my anime. So hello. And also get in touch with Mike about his uh, project because it sounds amazing. As my dad tells me all the time, it's it's like, OK, especially when you're a creator, right? How do you create stuff that is original? By being you, you know, my dad says like every key on the piano has been played. It's about how you arrange them. And I'm like, that is so true. It's so true. 
And nobody can tell the story that you want to tell in the way that you want to tell it. Certain things may be very similar to other things or inspired by other things, but it's truly down to who Mike Tony is and how he tells this story. So I'm very much looking forward to it, and I hope our listeners are very much looking forward to it. Mike, I wanted to ask, where can we find your work? I predominantly, you know, run most of my work through Instagram. Uh, my Instagram ha- handle is uh, Mike Tony Design, M-I-K-E-T-O-N-E-Y uh, Design. And that's where a lot of my concepts are, are drawn up. Uh, I do have a Tumblr, but, uh, you know, a lot of things on my Tumblr go come directly from my IG. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm hoping mm-hmm. to eventually release my first chapter on Tapastic. I want to see how that goes first, uh, you know, what type of audience uh, I can garner and stuff before I bring it to another publisher. I did have a couple publishers talk to me about some upcoming projects, but I, I do want to test them all first for free. And I want people to be able to read them for free before anything else. So yeah. Well, when the time comes for you to start promoting your work for your first chapter, let us know and Typed Out will be out there supporting you. Thank you so much. I 100% will do. Awesome. Will we be seeing you at any upcoming cons? Yeah, I mean, so I'm applying to Anime Next. I'm going to apply to uh, Anime Expo. Uh, I'm going to start trying to go to more cons. I I love the experience. Um, I got to meet you. I got to meet a bunch of other people uh, that I feel like have already uh, expanded my worldview. Um, So I'm super excited uh, for the next couple of cons. I still need to, you know, find more. Um, But yeah, so I I think, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully uh, next year I'll be at Anime Next. Awesome. Great. Well, Mike, I really wanted to thank you for coming on to the podcast today and sharing your perspective and your insight on your work. And um, yeah, everything that we've talked about has been really fulfilling and I appreciate it. And also the work that you're doing as far as like not only bringing people of color into the mainstream for anime, but also being inclusive with, you know, the other communities that could use the representation as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I, and I hope I, uh, when I do do that, I do it correctly. So I always say it's through respect, right? So as long as you are trying to be as respectful and as authentic to somebody's story, I don't think you can go wrong. And, you know, it also helps to have a person there beside you to, to coach you along the way, I suppose. Very true. Well, thanks again, Mike. I really appreciate it and uh, hope to have you on soon, especially when uh, we can be talking about Iku the Keeper. Mandy, I wanted to thank you for joining me as my co-host today. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Everyone should really follow Mike and check out his work. Mandy, where can we find you on Instagram? And if you want to follow me, you can find me at MandyCat, and that's M-A-N-D-I-C-A-T. And Mandy is an excellent photo editor, so really check out her work because it, it's unique in its style, and also she does incredible cosplay on there as well. Thank so, you. Of course. And if you are around this week, on Thursday evening, we are going to be having our first open mic night at Star Bar in Brooklyn. That's 9 p.m. Thursday, December 13th. All voices welcome. We hope to see you there. Again, thank you for listening, and we will see you again next week.